Scripture today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any uh, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look at uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empty, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every uh, name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, good morning, church. I kind of feel like we've already had church. I'm kind of superfluous up here, but uh, so um, we're going to talk about this passage, which is one of Dana's favorite passages in the Bible. And without having to say anything, my sweetheart has made it clear that I better not screw this up. <laughs> so I'm a little, I'm telling you now, I'm a little nervous about this passage, so let's say a quick prayer together. Lord, Moses told the people that your words are life. May that be true. May we realize that, that your words are life, and may we hang on to them like a drowning man reaches for a life preserver. Be with us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the topic this today is uh, Jesus uh, was made a servant. And um, this Philippians passage is just amazing. And I read it for a number of years before I ever really began to understand the significance of it. And ha having heard Jasmine's story, I feel I identify with Jasmine. I mean, I come, Christ woos me to him. I come to him. He shows me over and over again that he loves me, and then I run away. And what does he do? He pursues me. This is part of what it means to be that Jesus made a, was made a servant. And we're going to go through this, and we're going to teach that Jesus is very God, and very man. And in the passage there that talks about Jesus was a servant, it is an interesting Greek word which means doulos. And it is, uh, there's another Greek word that means slave, but it's different from doulos. The other Greek word means that you are uh, literally a slave and subservient to everyone. This is absolutely against your will, and you are bound by force 
to be treated. This is like a slave in the American South. Dulos has a different connotation, and it's a subtle difference, but a significant difference, that Jesus voluntarily made himself completely dependent upon the Father. He's not subservient to anyone else. He is subservient to the will of the Father. His desire is to do the will of the Father. And so if the Father's will is that he be beaten and crucified and not utter a word in his defense, then he will obey the Father. He is not subservient to Caiaphas and Ananias. He is not subservient to uh, Pontius Pilate. He's subservient to the will of his Father. That's doulos. He is voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father. So I'm going to tell you that Jesus is God, and I'm going to tell you something that many people already will see, and that Jesus is at the same time man. So our first passage up there is from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. And this is an image that Isaiah had it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. And um, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So you have to understand the power of this image that uh, uh, Isaiah had. So I'm going to ask you to flip the slide. This is the image that Isaiah saw in picture form. And when he sees the seraphim coming to him with hot tongs, that he expects. He expects being in the presence of the living God who is sinless and perfect, and Isaiah is robed in sin. He expects that coal to consume him alive. And instead, the coal, the coal is put on his tongue, and he is reborn. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in his preeminence before taking on flesh and coming, entering the world through the womb of a, a teenage girl in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. In Colossians 1, starting at verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we go to the next slide, my, the next point is that Jesus's humiliation was part of God's sovereign plan. So I know the title is that he was made a servant, but you have to understand that his role in being a servant was to be humiliated as part of God's plan. Jesus's voluntary love was service to the Father and it required him to endure the humiliation of his treatment on earth. So months, maybe about eight weeks ago when Omar preached from Acts 3, he read this passage. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So Jesus came and he said in Matthew 20, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Greek word here translated as serve has the connotation of service that arises out of love, not out of physical compulsion. Jesus came to do his father's will and to be completely dependent on the father and to render his service. His obedience out of love, Jesus endured humiliation out of love. So the first thing to understand is that Jesus is God. Second, that his humiliation was part of God's sovereign plan. And now the next thing is that Jesus's humiliation was complete. It was utter humiliation. Jesus on the cross was viewed by the people as having been cursed by God based on a passage in Deuteronomy 21. That passage says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. So when the people see Jesus crucified and the scribes and Pharisees are at the foot of the cross, this is the passage that is in their minds. They are convinced that, Jesus, that God himself is cursing Jesus. And they are only partly right. They're only partly right. In Isaiah 52, uh, verses 14, going to verse uh, 53, um, my phone isn't working, so I can't read the Bible on my phone. I'm going to actually read it in a book. Hallelujah. 
As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, his all, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he openeth not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to death. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So if we can now go to the next slide. And this is the God in Isaiah chapter 6. The next slide. This is the God who created all things and for whom and by whom all things were created. This is the God who came through the womb of Mary. Same person. Now Jesus' humili humiliation was voluntary in order to fulfill God's plan. And I want to talk to you about a doctrine in our faith called election. So don't freak out when I mention the word election. We're not talking politics. Um, it tells us um, in Psalm 139, my sweetheart introduced me to this psalm. Um, psalm 139, 16, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were no days. You hear me? When as yet there were no days. God decided 
that he was going to save people. Now, I have to explain that election means that God's decision to save some. And it's undergirded by a legal transaction. I'm sorry, I was raised in the law, it's in my blood now. But it really is a legal transaction. Jesus, who was sinless and perfect, was declared sinful and guilty, though he always remained sinless and perfect. That was a legal transaction to declare him guilty. Why? So that we who are indeed sinful and guilty can be declared by this legal transaction innocent. We are not innocent. We have done everything we've been charged with and things that people don't know about that we could be charged with. But in this legal transaction, the son takes on our sin and the son gives us his righteousness. This is the legal transaction that undergirds election. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter when he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So when Peter at Pentecost preached, uh, Pastor Omar shared this verse with us from part of the Pentecost speech. It said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then in Ephesians 1, it said, in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So to him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to God's own purpose. So one of the things that we always have to understand is God does what he wants, only what he wants, and always what he wants. Now we have a modern example of election in our political system. In our state, and this is true in most states, but in California, the governor is the highest executive office in our state. The, gov the government has, the governor, has the absolute authority as the sovereign to terminate 
or pardon the sentence of anyone convicted of a state law or crime. You can't do it on with regard to a federal crime or a military crime, but for any state crime, the governor can grant clemency to one person. This is called executive clemency. And because it's so controversial, generally speaking, the governor only exercises it on the last day of office. Not at the beginning and not at the middle, because whenever the governor does it, it is going to create a firestorm of protest. Um, see, we think, we understand that justice is an entitlement, but we have to understand that mercy is not an entitlement. It is the free gift of the sovereign. We have a right to demand justice. We have no right to demand mercy. That is the sovereign's decision. So you will notice that every governor who leaves office on his, his or her last day, they always grant clemency to one person, and there's always a big to-do about it. Um, so there are three things noteworthy when the governor exercises clemency. He, one, he only does it as his last act before leaving office. Two, the other inmates still in jail cannot claim unfairness because they were all lawfully convicted. They have received justice. They have received what they deserve. And three, the governor does not take on the penalty of the convicted released person. You understand? So regardless how much fewer people raise, the governor basically says, I'm out of office, I'm not running anymore, so I'm gonna let this person go. In order for the person to be granted clemency, he must have been convicted. Some people cry that election clemency is unfair, but they don't understand the executive right to do so. But, the, but I want to agree with them in part. Election is unfair, but not in the way people think. Jesus agreed to be crucified for our sins. Jesus was sinless, but was crucified because of what we have done. It is not fair that we be saved. It is not fair that we do not get what we deserve. It is fair that people get what they deserve. But unlike the governor, Jesus' exercise of his sovereign mercy, and he does so whenever and to whomever he chooses. He does not wait for the end of his term because he is infinite and eternal. But also unlike the governor, even the mouths of the people would be stopped. If the governor says, I choose to release convicted felon William McCurin. However, I know he is due for the death penalty. And in releasing him, I am going to take his place. And I agree to be executed at the same date, time, and place as was earmarked for Bill McEwen. So whatever their criticism might have been before, they have to put their hands over their mouths. They might say the governor's a fool. Who in the world 
would die for a convicted felon like that. It is nonsense. And they may rail on the government. Don't do that. You still have so much to offer, blah, blah, blah. Nope. It's my decision. But the governor doesn't do that. But Jesus did. No one, therefore, can complain about divine election for at least two things. First, we are all guilty. We are justly condemned. We are due to receive justice. Second, Jesus voluntarily bears the penalty of every person to whom he extends grace. He has, therefore, the sovereign right to determine for whom he will serve as substitute. The, the danger for us is that we think we know who the elect are. I can tell you the people who knew me in college, in high school, when they hear that I have become a Christian, they say, McCurin? Bill McCurin. And I can't, I can't look at them and say, well, yeah, um, I mean, why not, why not me? I look at them and say, I agree. Absolutely, I, 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 I can't explain it, except God's sovereign grace. God is condemned by the very people he created. God is condemned by his own creation, nailed to a tree that he himself called into existence. In Romans 8, 29, verse 30, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Before his crucifixion and arrest, Jesus is giving his high priestly prayer in the presence of his disciples. And he says this in John 17, this is part of his prayer. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Isaiah 6. This prayer is between Isaiah 6 and the crucifixion. There are four aspects of God's love, at, at least four, I mean there are many more, but at least four, that boggle the mind. It is passionate. It is personal. It is intentional. And it is focused. By passionate, I mean God doesn't have this kind of cool, standoffish affection that says, I love Bernice. No, it is a passion for Bernice. He does not, and by personal, I don't mean, you know how the stars, when they get up at a concert for which you paid an exorbitant price for a ticket, and they say, I love you. You and I know that that's not personal. Because if you said to them backstage, hey, can I come to your house for dinner? They put their guards 
between you and them and ask you to leave. And when I say it is intentional, God didn't stumble upon this plan. Jesus didn't stumble upon his interaction with me. His intention from before the world existed was to save Edna. Save Omar and Asa and Jason and Aaron and Leslie. It was his intention to do so. He didn't say, oh, I couldn't find Ball. I guess I better get Bill. No, it's shucks. So it's not only personal and passionate and intentional, it is focused. That is, God takes every circumstance in our lives, no matter how insignificant and no matter how grand, no matter how happy and no matter how disheartening, every single incident in our life, he bends the arc of the universe to bring us into relationship to him. Nothing in our lives is accidental. God has a plan not only to save us, but as it says in Romans, to glorify us with him. So it takes the humiliation and the horror of the cross of Christ to reveal the true nature of God's love. So if I go to Paul and I say to Paul, uh, hey, some guys were at your house and they uh, said, you know, you owe them uh, uh, a dollar uh, and you weren't there and they look kind of rough, so I paid them the dollar so they leave you alone. Paul might say, well, okay, thanks. Here's a dollar. In fact, here's, take two. But if the guys at Paul's door say to him, you owe us $20 million, pay us now or we'll kill you. And I come to Paul and I said, well, look, I'm going to drain my bank account. I have $20 million. I don't. <laughs> but, but I gave them the $20 million and here's your release. It says debt is paid. Paul now knows how to regard me. Paul cannot get on a payment plan to reimburse me. He must be overwhelmed by what I did for him. It takes the humiliation and horror of the cross to reveal the true nature of God's love for us. The humiliation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ are the irrefutable proof that God loves us. Not our circumstances, but the cross. The key point here is that though it is really not about us, it is about God. That is why Peter could so boldly proclaim before the arresting authorities in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, God is omnipotent and omniscient, meaning he knows all things. But I submit to you that there are four things that the omniscient God does not know. One, he does not know any sin that he does not hate. Two, he does not know any of the elect whom he does not love. Three, he does not know any path to himself except Jesus. And four, he does not know any way, any other way to escape his judgment except the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So because of this love, 
Paul exults. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. So when I read the passage earlier that there were things that the angels longed to understand, they looked into to understand what is going on. Now imagine Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and he is being slapped, spit upon, and his beard pulled. I just want you to imagine this scene. In heaven, the multitude of hosts are looking at the Father for, let's go, give us the word. They'll be there like that. When he was in front of Pontius Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know that I have power to, to, to kill you or to let you go? And Jesus said, you have no power over me. I could say one word and seven legions of angels would be here. Those seven legions are desperately looking at they can, just one word, God. And they're straining. Have you ever seen a, a dog on a leash straining to get at something they want? These angels are straining in heaven. Let us go. That's the power that Jesus voluntarily set aside. He did not cease to be God. But his godness, he did not exercise in order to submit to the will of the Father and to do whatever the Father wanted. This was not by compulsion. This was by love. And so when he said, I do all those things that please the Father, and as the Father speaks, so I speak. He did not cease to be God. He ceased to exercise his prerogatives as God. And though he had the right to call on the angels, he did not. If we do not understand this truth, we will always think the cross is about us. The cross is not about us. The cross is about God, his grace, his glory, his magnificence, his sovereignty, his wowness. We are wretched and yet we are loved, sinners and yet forgiven, beggars but made unbelievably wealthy, willful rebels yet adopted as sons and daughters. We have nothing of value and yet we have given, been given everything worth having. We are utterly bereft, but made to rejoice from the depths of his heart, from of our hearts. Why? Because of God. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us 
through Jesus. Remember that paradigm that Pastor Omar talked about, what God does for us, in us, and through us? Well, this is primarily focused on what he has done for us. And so in the last slide, I just want to give you the duality of Christ. Just as not all of it, this is just part of my own reflections. As fully man, he is lamb. But as God, he is lion. As fully man, he is doulos, or servant. But as God, he is king of kings and lord of lords. As man, he is crucified. But as God, he is conqueror. As man, he is born a helpless babe. But as God, he is omnipotent. As man, he has became sin for us. But as God, he is fully sinless and impeccable. He is born of a woman. But as God, he was self-existent. As man, he was died on the cross. As God, he is eternal. As fully man, he lived in humiliation. But as God, he dwelled in divine dignity and splendor. As man, his majesty is veiled. But as God, his majesty fills the universe. As man, he is nailed to the cross immobile. But as God, he is the way. He was called a liar, but as God, he is the truth. As man, he was dead and buried in a tomb, but as God, he is life. As man, he was forsaken, treated as not a son, but he is the only begotten son. As man, he had nothing, but as God, he possesses all things. As man, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But then as man, we see in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16, it says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hair, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So go again. This is the God in Isaiah 6 who would voluntarily agree to hang on the cross as a cursed man cursed by the Father for our sake. So what does this all mean for us? And I wrap up with this. The, re the proper response to seeing the Almighty God as servant is humble, heartbroken repentance. We know we have taken on the humility of Christ as our own when we no longer ignore justify or minimize our own sins. When we say nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Two, we know when our hearts cry out to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Three, we are called to be Christ conscious, not self-conscious. Not self-conscious through pride and not self-conscious through self-denunciation. We are called to focus on Christ and not self. Next. 
We know that we get the servanthood of Christ when we understand what Jesus has done for us. See, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And another response is joy. Jesus heals the broken spirit. He uplifts the brokenhearted. Jesus says to the unwanted, I want you. To the lonely, he says, you are part of my family. He puts your pain on his heart and in turn puts his joy into our hearts. And he says to us, let me love people through you. Merry Christmas. <laughs>